0: Today we're reading in Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning, Trollview Church. Um, Like Derek said, my name is John Sublett. I am a member here, and um, it wouldn't be a Trollview sermon without pointing out the Connect card, so... Um, everyone should have this in your chairs. So uh, this is a great place to take notes, or if there's anything that's kind of stirring in your heart during this time, go ahead and write this down and share this with our pastors. Um, They love to grab coffee, lunch, phone calls, just to get to know you and to pray for you and see what's going on with your life. So uh, don't be afraid to use this uh, resource. And so I'm grateful to get the chance to um, preach from the Psalms. Uh, Actually, last year I also got to uh, kick off our psalm series of Psalm 42, a psalm of Ament. Um, I remember that morning, there was, was this funny moment where someone came up to me and said, hey, I hear you're preaching. I said, yeah, I'm doing Psalm 42. He's like, oh, Psalm 42. That's not a happy psalm. And so, yeah, I led with a psalm of Ament, and so I went to this hoping that, like, you no, know let's not do a psalm of Ament. We're doing a psalm of Ament this morning. Um, just could not get away from it. Um, but I love the Psalms, kind of like what Derek said. They are a rich source of comfort as they reflect the emotional experience we all fear, feel. Um, John Calvin said this about the Psalms. He called the book of Psalms the anatomy of all parts of the soul. He said, There is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. When we read the Psalms, we see ourselves, we see our everyday experiences. The psalms touch everybody from the stay-at-home mom to the single dude, from the family living paycheck to paycheck to the individual living surplus. It taps into the frustrated couple to the tired parents. The psalms bring us together at the feet of Jesus and show us how to relate to God amid a chaotic and ever-changing world. Now, if you have ever spent any time with me, you will find something something that's very dear to my heart, very clearly. Um, and you're about to find out if you want to get to know me based off this. I'm a big fan of the show The Office. I love it. Um, in college, um, my roommates we would just have it on. It would just be on in the background. This was before Netflix had that feature where like stop and ask you do you want to keep watching. So The Office just played. It just played nonstop like background music. So it just kind of seeped into my subconscious. Um, now something I've come to find out is you either like The Office or you don't. There's like no middle ground. I feel like with the show, um, and that's perfectly okay. You can have Bad tastes in TV shows. Um, one comment, one comment that I've noticed people's dislike for the show is because of a certain character. Um, be you know who it is? It's Michael Scott. Uh, Michael Scott is the childish, bumbling, unqualified manager of the Office group of, car- of the of the Office, um, and he just he just does terrible things. Um, I know people who, in their companies, when they do like HR meetings, they show videos of the Office of so what Michael does. Say, don't do this. Um, so, yeah, uh, and something you come to find out about Michael is he is quick to believe in scams and lies. Um, one scene in particular, Michael um, that comes to mind when you think about Michael believing lies is he's um, trying to sell his coworkers on this get-rich pyramid scheme. So already crossing a hundred professional boundaries already. Um, um, about calling cards, um, I didn't know what those were, so that kind of dates me right away. Um, and so, anyway, he's he's trying to sell them on this, and the, his coworkers kind of like, kind of questioning Michael's discernment on solid investments. Uh, and you come to find out that Michael, at one time, um, he he invested in somebody who claimed to be the son of the, the disposed king of Nigeria um, via email. And there are countless <laughs> I know, um, and there are countless moments of this where Michael easily easily believes lies. To him, that I was told to him, but we also see that he also tells himself lies. Another thing is you see Michael, throughout the show, he, he makes these grandiose promises um, that involve a lot of money, thinking that someday he'll have the money. And as you can imagine, um, none of this pans out to the joy of the audience. Um, but we can, as, as you expect, none of these promises pan out the way that Michael convinced himself they were, they would. Now, it is fun to watch Michael and as he flounders in his promises and say, and probably say he should have known better, and he, he probably should. But I would also say this with all humility and love, that there's probably a little of Michael in all of us. We are all prone to believe in lies told to us by the world, by the devil, and we're also prone to believe in lies that our very own flesh tells ourselves. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 3, kind of like we preached about last week, our sin begins in believing a lie about God and a lie about who we are. And none of us are immune to this, from the lie that a relationship or maybe a different relationship will solve my problems, or if I just made more money, I would never stress again, to the lie that I must present a perfect picture of myself to other people or they will not love me. Lies are subtle and pervasive, and just like Michael, the lies we believe have an immense amount of power to ruin us. One pastor wrote this, this is, There is not a soul I know who is not living, at some level, bondage to lies. So my hope this morning is that in Psalm 130, that Psalm 130 would help us all shed light on lies we tell ourselves. Lies we believe about God, um, lies we believe about ourselves, and how they connect each other. A lot of times when we lie to ourselves about something, it affects how we view God, and vice versa. They kind of dance together back and forth, affecting and influencing one another. Now, why, now, now here's the thing I love about Psalm 130. Here's kind of like a history lesson of, of one Psalm 130. It's this um, part of this amazing group of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. This is Psalms 120 through 134. And tradition tells us that every year, the Jewish people would uh, travel from their homes to Jerusalem for festivals. And there would be entire families and sometimes entire towns traveling together on this uphill journey to Jerusalem because, in case you didn't know, Jerusalem was built on a hill. It was the highest point in Israel, and so everybody walked up the hill together. And, they, and, and tradition tells us that as they were go- making their journeys, they would be reciting the Psalms of Ascent together. Um, this is quite different than my own family vacations, when we traveled, we listened to the Beach Boys and Disney's Greatest Hits. Um, these Psalms cover all parts of life, from persecution to the need of community, from seasons of happiness to, to seasons of deep sadness. They talk about the goodness of God, to the mystery of his providence. And most of all, they have something to say about how we should view God and how we should view ourselves. The Psalms of, of sin are supposed to reflect the journey of life that everyone travels as they travel up to the Holy of Holies. Um, one, guys, one, one book said this, they are songs of tra- transition, brief hymns that provide courage, support, and inner direction for getting us where God is leading us in Jesus Christ. Now here's our roadmap we will follow for this journey. We have two main points. And then a third point that's kind of an implication of the first two. Um, the first one is um, the, titled "The One Who Hears Sinners." The second point is "The One Who Forgives Sinners," and the third point is "The Forgiven Who Profess the Forgiver." So let's look at Psalm. We're going to start and uh, we're going to look at verses one and two. So if your Bibles um, be open there, it'll also be on the screen. Um, Psalm 130, 1 through two. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So so like I said, our first point is the one who hears sinners. The way we talk to someone reveals how we view the relationship we have with that person. Life is filled with all types of relationships, and they come in all shapes and sizes, and they all function different. A spouse talks differently with with their spouse than they would with a two-year-old child. The way we relate to a friend is different than the way we relate to a co-worker. Um, the way we view our relationship with a boss is different than the way we view a stranger, even though I bet sometimes you, sometimes you wish you could view your boss as a stranger. Um, even though sometimes you wish, um, like I said, life is filled with, with relationships, and each relationship functions based on how both individuals see themselves um, and the other person. And this includes our relationship with God. You see, everybody has some kind of relationship with God, believers or non-believers. It just depends on what type of relationship is that. Is that. Um, just like with every with relationship, what factors into this one is how we view God and, to how we view ourselves. The way the psalmist in Psalm 130 cries out to God reveals something about the kind of relationship he has with God. We see that this starts with something, that, that something he believes about himself, that he is a sinner. In need of help, and he sees his own sin as something destructive. Um, He uses the phrase, out of the depths. This is a a phrase used throughout the Old Testament. Um, It carries with it the imagery of chaotic waters. The writer is using this phrase to to describe the feeling of guilt, the feeling of despair that comes with falling into sin, something that we all can relate to. What the psalmist is saying is, I am drowning in the tumultuous sea, and there is no lifesaver with constant wind, thunder and lightning, continuous downpour, waves big, bigger than you can imagine. I am trapped and drowning. I am tired, and my muscles are burning with exhaustion and need of relief. This is the heart, heart of the writer. His sin has exhausted him. He has, come to an end of, of, he has come to the end of himself and has led him to a place of confusion and despair. That is the way he sees his own sin. He is trapped and needs help outside of himself. And this is not just his sin, this is all of our sin. Our sin traps us in lies. It whispers into our ears that we do not need God, that we can be the God of our own lives, that no one can inform me how to live, and I have the right to do whatever my heart desires. I can treat people however I personally deem as right. This is all of us. Um, The question, though, is how are we going to confront our sin? Are we going to own it the way the psalmist does, or are we going to do something else with our sin? There are usually three ways that we confront our sin. Um, and this goes not just for unbelievers, but also believers. Um, the first time is we, times we just de- deny it. We deny that sin is a thing. And I think we see this a lot in today's world. We deny what's right and wrong, good or bad, righteous or sin. And we just say, it doesn't exist. There is no, pinge, there's no definition for it, and you can't tell me how to live my life. So we just deny our sin. Another way is we rationalize it. We say, "Yeah, we sinned, but uh, it's not really my fault." You know, if if my spouse just was a better spouse, I would have not have done that. If my kids didn't behave this way, I would be a better parent. If if my boss wasn't such a micromanager, I would not be so frustrated all the time at work. We rationalize and explain it by placing the blame on someplace else and not owning our own sin. And then a third way is we compare and diminish it. We say. Yeah, I know it's a sin, but did you see what my neighbor does every weekend? I'm not that bad. Um, We compare ourselves to the wrong person. We don't compare ourselves to Jesus. Um, And when we do this, we stop calling sin a sin. We start calling it something else, something that God does not do. Um, But there's a fourth way to deal with our sin, and the psalmist gives the example of it. He confesses to the one who will hear. There is a courageous vulnerability to use Trailview lingo, in the words of the psalmist, he knows deeply the character of his God, and he knows that he's the only one right now who can hear his pleas. He knows that when God sees his sin, He sees it differently than what most people see it, and that's a hard reality to face. That's a hard thing to take in that um, the way God sees our sin might be different the way that we want to view our sin. But God takes our sin um, very seriously, and and so I encourage you: like, how do you view your sin this morning? Do you view it as just something to to look past, to to rationalize, to compare with other people and diminish? Or do you see it the way that the writer of Psalm 130 sees it, as something that is like a tumultuous sea that traps us, that brings us to despair? Um, From the deepest of depths, from the deepest of sins, God can hear any sinner. Um, and when he hears us, he moves, us to, he moves to be near us, even in our brokenness. When we believe that God can hear and is near to the broken heart, we can trust that he will dear, deal mercifully with us. That first takes us acknowledging that our sin is sin. Um, but when we view God as opposite of that, when we view God as someone who does not move near to the sinner, as far off, as uncaring, as judgmental, then why would we confess to him? Why would we want to talk to a guy like this? Um, we go out of way to avoid people like this in our lives. We all know that coworker that, as they walk to our desk, we kind of hold our breath because we know, like, they're kind of harsh, kind of cold. Um, God's not like that. Um, when He looks at you in your sin, He does not see you as a as, as a um, impossible project. He sees you as His creation in need of help. Um, When we think that God is seeking perfection out of us, it makes it hard to confess to him. So um, I want you to hear this this morning. God is not looking for a perfect people. He is looking for a confessing people. I'll say that again. God is not looking for a perfect people. He is looking for a confessing people. Because it is the confessors, the people who own their sin as sin, who confess to the God. It's those people who, Um, not the self-proclaimed perfect people that truly know the heart of God. They see him as merciful. As, As one writer puts it, sees God as someone who shows forgiveness because it is a habit of his. Mercy and forgiveness are a habit of God. God's heart burns for the honest and humble. He aches to see us express our shortcomings. He tells us that he is a safe place to come and seek refuge from ourselves. Most of the time, we are our own worst enemy. Most of the time, our sin is our greatest danger, and in that, God is our greatest ally against our sin. And when we believe this about God, the natural implication is to confess our our sins. He is not a scary doctor that we try to avoid, except for that yearly physical, in which we keep pushing off over and over again. Um, He is the patient and tender-hearted physician we go to, even with the smallest of infirmities. See, the world tells, tells the lie that we must keep all this hidden. The psalmist exemplifies something completely different. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you know, is, he was a, a German pastor and theologian um, during World War II and kind of calling out the sin that was going on at the time. He says this about sin and confes- confession. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. Like the psalm, we must recover the spiritual practice of confession. Confession is the spiritual practice of bringing what was dark into the light so that what is true may enter and change who we are. And I'm preaching to myself as this. As I, was, as I was preparing for this, I could see the many ways that I deny, rationalize, and compare my own sin. Um, and when I do this, I am robbing myself of something beautiful. I am robbing myself of experiencing the genuine and life-changing relationship that God so desperately wants for me and all of us in the room. Now, I'm not saying you must confess your sins so that God will love you. That is not how that works. Um, that would make confession a work and not an aspect of being in relationship with God. But I am saying Is that we might need to ask ourselves why we do not confess? Or why do we stop confessing? What are we believing and listening to that makes us hinder our relationship with God by not taking our sin more serious? The truth is that God takes our sin very seriously because He takes us so seriously. He is always available when we cry out to Him. He is a Father who does not mind being pestered. Um, He is overjoyed when we trust Him enough to come to Him with our failures. But he, just does not, he, but he just does not listen and have a merciful ear to our pleas. That is just the beginning. You see, when we confess to God, we are not just confessing to someone who just wants to hear us out. We are confessing to someone who has the power to actually do something about our sin. He has the power to forgive. Um, if, you, if you still have your Bible open, let's look at the, the next couple of verses Psalm 133 through 6. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. So the first point was the one who hears sinners. The second point is the one who forgives sinners. The section starts off with the psalmist kind of asking this hypothetical question. He asks, um, if you, O Lord, should mark your iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Um, could I stand against the judgment of God if He would count my sins against me? What would I do? Could, could all my money buy me the status I need to overcome this judgment? Or about how could I outsmart God? Or could I just say like, "I'm well-liked among my family, my church? Or could I say, "Look at all the good things I do, Lord." Um, no, all of that would be ins- insufficient. The psalmist points out, but however, the psalmist points out that there is a great forgiveness in God. There is a plethora of forgiveness. Like I already said, forgiveness is a habit of God. He just does it. Just like how I, I naturally press the snooze button 20 times in the morning, um, God naturally forgives all those who come to Him. That is just who He is. And this is not just Psalm 130 saying this, this is throughout the Bible. We see it in Genesis 3 with the first sin. We see it when the Israelites throughout the Old Testament continually disobey God. Um, within, with, we see it with individuals such as David who committed sins that destroyed many lives, um, but yet God forgave him and counted him as someone after his own heart. We see it in the New Testament with writers like Paul who, who says in Ephesians 2, "Sin there is forgiveness of trespasses. And most of all, we see it in Jesus Jesus the agent by which our forgiveness is achieved. Jesus who came and died on the cross so that we might have the forgiveness we do not deserve made readily for us. Um, in this singular act of Jesus on the cross, um, we see the, the true heart of God more clearly than any place else in the Bible. He, he's, putting on, he's putting on display who he is and saying we have no excuse to say that he's uncaring by sending, his, by sending Jesus to die for us. Um, we see a God who forgives sinners. A God who's seeking to make all things right. We see this in, the, in, the, in his heartbeat because he went so far as to come himself to earth to bear the weight of sin on the cross. The way all people who would believe and cry out to him would not find themselves bearing that guilt, that they might find forgiveness. All those who confess their sins and come to him receive this. So the Bible is overflowing at the edges with this message. Now here's the thing, as I was reading this and seeing like, okay, God, he forgives people. I see that. But then it, it, it confused me um, when, it, it, when it ends, verse 4, it ends with a phrase, that you may be feared. It says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That kind of confused me. Why would forgiveness lead to fear? Uh, why would, why, shouldn't it shouldn't say like that you, you forgive me so I lead to loving you or, or appreciating you. It says that, that, that you may be feared. So then I ask myself, what exactly is, is forgiveness? How do I view forgiveness? And, and does that match up what is happening here? Um, now, here's the thing about forgiveness. I think we tend to think lightly of it, especially if you're someone like me who you, you grew up in the church, you grew up hearing the stories, um, saw the little felt board Jesus and all that, um, and just kind of, you kind of see it as like a simple kind gesture by God, as a simple phrase. He's just passing. He's throwing out that says, I forgive you. And if we're honest, this goes back to how we view our sin. Um, if we view our sin as just wrongful acts, we are thinking small of sin. When in reality, sin is so much bigger and so much worse than just wrong acts, sin is the universe fracturing disease that runs through our entire being. And when we sin, um, and when we see sin in this manner, we can see forgiveness not just as a kind gesture for God, God, not just a simple phrase that he says in passing. We see it as an extremely powerful act. We can see it as this universe-reforming power moved by God. The fact that God can forgive sins forgive sins, shows just how powerful He is. And when we start seeing this, we start seeing God as who He is, as a powerful God. He's not weak. He has the power to bring what was dead to life, to raise the brokenhearted. It is, forgiveness is a mighty act. And what I think the psalmist is getting at is that that the God who has the power to forgive sins is a terribly powerful God because if he can forgive sins, what else does he have the power to do? Um, Jesus himself helps, um, and there's a story in Luke. um, You can can turn to Luke 5, it would be in verses 17 to 26, or it would be on the screen. It tells the story of Jesus hearing the paralytic. And it says, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And we saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and, they glor- and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. We see Jesus playing out with the psalm this is writing in Psalm 130, that Jesus is saying, saying, like, you, think, you think the bigger deal, the more, the more powerful thing would be healing this man's legs, but really the more powerful thing to do is to forgive sins. It reorients how we view it. And Jesus pointed out that we should not confuse what the more powerful thing he did. Healing this man's paralyzed legs is nothing compared to the powerful act of, exp- of forgiving sins. So if you do not know God this morning, know that, know that when someone confesses, confesses their sins and believes in Jesus, there is a mighty act happening. It's not passive. It is extremely active by God. A relationship that was forever severed is forever reconnected. We are brought into the very arms of a strong and undefeatable father that we can trust, that we can find security, safety in, because of how powerful he is. He is an extremely powerful God, and he shows that because he can forgive sins. And for the already believer, be reminded that when we continue in a lifestyle of confession, we are reminded in those moments of the true freedom we have in God. We are reminded that we are forever His and that we have nothing to fear. When we come to know how powerful God is in the act of forgiving sins, we come to know that He is capable of so much more. And when we know that, we come to know that we can have hope in Him during difficult times. We know that when life goes ways that we did not imagine it to go, we know that God is for us because he can forgive sins, because he sent Jesus. We know that he has our backs. We believe that he will always come through for us um, in the end. Um, Then then, then the next two, five and six, it says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. The psalmist has this deep confidence knowing that God will come through. He says he can wait on the Lord, because when you know that the most powerful being in and outside of creation has you secure in his arms, you have no fear. When he says that he loves us and he is faithful, we can bank on the truth that no matter what happens, no matter what hardship comes, no matter what curveballs life throws at us, we can trust him. We can trust that he would come through on his promise to us, that we can hope in his word, as the writer puts it. Hope for the Christian is different than how the world sees hope. Vastly different, actually. Hope in our modern world sees it as kind of a wishful thinking, like, I hope I win a million dollars. I hope I get into that college. I hope I get that job. Um, I hope that the lines for lunch after church are not too long. It is this wish-washy hope, because the future is so unknown and unpredictable for finite beings like you and me. Um, but the hope that a Christian holds onto is something vastly different and so much more beautiful. It is a for-sure hope. It is a hope that stands the test of time. It is a hope that outlasts any tough season. It is a hope that God in his infinite mind sees all of creation. He sees its complexities. He sees the complexities of your life, and he knows what he's doing. It is a hope that trusts that God will keep his word and so I ask, do you, believe that, do you believe that God knows what he's doing? It's, a hard, it's, a hard, it's hard to fathom the, the, the capacity that God has to see and know everything, but that is the God we get to serve. That is the God that forgives us, that has our back for all who place their faith in him. Um, yes, we cannot fully understand him. That's okay. Um, if, we could completely understand, if we could completely understand what he is capable of and what he's doing, would he really be that more powerful than us if we could really level with him Uh, but thank goodness there's a mystery to his power and redemptive plan that means that what he has imagined as good and right is so much better than what we could think of and because of that we can trust and wait on him um as the watchman waits for the dawn it it, it uses this phrase twice it's supposed to be like this kind of emphasis like this gut punch like kind of capture this image um as the watchman waits for the dawn, we can, with for sure hope, wait on God. You see, watchmen, um, they never really know when the sun rises. This is way before any type of technology. Um, he might be able to pick up on things like the change in temperature, the movement of the animals, or maybe his own internal clock, um, kind of help, help him a little bit. But every time the sun breaks the surface, there was a little bit of surprise every time. But he still knows it's coming. He still knows at some point the dawn will break, and the light of the sun will push back the darkness. He knows that there will always be a new day. As Christians, we get to approach life the same way. During seasons of darkness, we can trust that God will break through and push it back. We can know that. Why can we know that? Because, God, because he, is a capable, cause, cause he is a God capable of hearing us in our sin. He is a God who is mighty and has the power to forgive sins. He is a God who brings a new day for all who come to him. Um, Do not let your sin be a reason to miss out on enjoying this kind of God. Um, Follow the example set by the writer of Psalm 130. Own your sin. Confess your sin. And have confidence that the God that you notice will come tenderly and gently near to you and embrace you. This goes for believers too. Believers, brothers and sisters, continue to confess your sin and find hope again and again and again. Do not grow tired in coming to the Lord, but persevere and cry out to him. My hope is that Trovey Church will be a forever confessing people. It will keep us humble as a church. It will keep us gracious. It will keep us gentle. When we confess together, we grow closer together. Every time we confess our sins, we are taking a step closer together to becoming the church that God has called us to be. And this leads us to the the final point, um, the last two verses. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The final point is this, the forgiven profess the, the forgiver. There is a shift in perspective in these, last, in these last two verses. The whole time has been talking about the relationship between God and the, the writer, going back and forth. But now the relationship changes to being between the psalmist and his fellow brothers and sisters, his fellow, fellow Israelites. We see in the psalmist this desire for his fellow um, kinsmen to experience the same transformative and safe relationship he has with God. Um, we can see this in the heart of like other people in the Bible, like like Paul the apostle. That in Romans um, nine, he even talks about how he wished that he's that he's come to a point where he's grown so close to Jesus, and he, he's experienced so much change and transformation from Jesus that he would actually um, he would give up his own salvation if his brothers and sisters could experience the same thing. Paul comes to a point in his relationship with Christ that he so desires for his fellow kinsmen to come to know Christ that he says he would give it all up if they would. As we grow in our relationship with God, the focus moves from inward to outward, from self-centered to other-centered. There comes this, 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 there comes this desire to profess to the people in our lives the glory and kindness of God. To remind and tell people that there is redemption that is unimaginable, in God and will be, and He will. Be, he is faithful and trustworthy to carry it out. But the but the lie we believe in is is this that we must be perfect Christians to do this. There is a temptation as we grow in Christ to hide our sin. It's a weird thing, but it happens to all of us, and we start believing that we must put on the Instagram filter so that people would would believe in Jesus. I want to. Um, but that's not, that's not what, what needs to happen. Um, like I said, God is not looking for a perfect people. He is looking for a professing people. And the psalmist and the apostle Paul show us that it isn't our perfection, but our honest, brokenheartedness that the world needs to see. The psalmist began Psalm 130 by saying, I am a sinner stuck in my sin and I need help. Paul, throughout his letters, highlights his own failings and shortcomings. Because what the world needs to know isn't that the church is perfect perfect but that we are just as lost except the difference is that we have a god who is perfect when we hide our sin from the world what we were saying is we are perfect so you should come to us but when we own our failings when we confess our sins what we get to say is this i am just as messed up so let me show you the way to the one who can do something about it we get to be the guide instead of the destination Let's be a people who, do, who, does not, who, do not, who does not give into the cultural lie that we have to be perfect. May we, by the work of the Spirit, shed that, that lie this morning. May we know that there is a deep and rich forgiveness from a mighty and tender God. When God has freely given his approval to you, what else do you need? And do you know that this morning? Do you know that God has looked on you, for all who have placed their faith in him, has looked on you and said, I give my approval to you because of what Jesus has done that God has looked on those who have placed their faith in Jesus and fully open-handed, given his approval to you. And yes, he does see your shortcomings. He does see your anger, your short temp- short-temperness, He sees your lust, your gossip, your selfishness. Yet, he has freely chosen to, to, to love you because of Jesus. So may this be a morning, morning we run to him. May this be a morning that we unselfishly own our sin, and choose to believe that God can hear us, that God is powerful. Imagine with me for a second a life where sin has no hold on you, has no hold on your spouse, has no hold on your friend, has no hold on the person sitting next to you. Um, We can make that more of a reality this morning by coming to the one who hears and forgives, by confessing our sins, by owning it for what it is, calling it the way God sees it, and going to Him, not hiding it, not denying it, not trying to diminish it, but saying what it is and going to the one who can do something about it. And then confession overflows from confession to God to confessing to our brothers and sisters. We're all in this together, um, Trollview. And when we do this, we allow our brothers and sisters to profess how great our God is to us. We get to hear the gospel from our fellow Christians. And in that, we come to know God even more deeply. So we're going to enter a time of prayer right now. Um, I'm gonna give us a couple of seconds. Just kind of sit with this. If there's anything on your heart, um, bring that to the Lord. Is he is he is he bringing up a sin? Anger, lust, the way you treat your spouse or your kids, the way you act at work. Is he bringing anything up? So with all heads, all eyes closed, I'm going to give out about 30 seconds and bring that to the Lord. Confess that to Him. And then we'll have, we'll have people in the back, if you need counsel, if, if something's just really burning on your heart, take this time to talk to them. If you don't know, if you don't know the God I'm talking about this morning, um, come, come find someone. Father, we praise you that you are the one who hears, that you're the one who forgives, that you are a strong and mighty God. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would move among us, that it would bring confession and repentance today, that people would find freedom from sin, that they would see you for who you are, as this loving, merciful, and forgiving God. Father, I pray this all in your Son's name. Amen.